0: This is Steady Habits, the Connecticut Mirror podcast that takes a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make life work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. The state Senate convenes on Tuesday, July 28th, in a special session to take up business that was put aside when COVID shut down the Capitol for months. The most contentious vote will be on a police accountability bill pushed by progressive Democrats following the death of George Floyd. It passed the House of Representatives in special session last week after hours of emotional debate, while demonstrations swirled in support of both Black Lives Matter and police outside the Capitol building. After the bill's passage, Democrat Robin Porter told Connecticut Public Radio that the reforms were overdue.
1: It took a lot of faith. The odds were stacked against us, and we had to believe in something bigger than ourselves because this is bigger than us, and that was what did it for me.
0: Among those reforms, a change to the immunity police officers have from civil lawsuits. That's a change that House Minority Leader Themis Claredes said went too far.
1: Once qualified immunity starts to get nicked away at, which this starts, there should be no cop that feels safe going on the road and going to work without having his own
0: insurance. The Connecticut Mirror's Kellen Lyons covers criminal justice and was there for the overnight debate that he said wasn't just a raw battle along partisan lines. All the way up to the vote, he said, the contents of the bill were changing. The lawmakers were still hammering out the
2: final details of the bill because they couldn't get an agreement on one specific section. Um, this is a section that you probably have heard about. Uh, if you've followed any news on it so far, and it has to do with qualified immunity, or more specifically, it has to do with holding officers accountable uh, for misconduct and providing a means of redress for folks who have their rights violated. I think what ultimately is underscored is there was a there was a disconnect between some of the the white lawmakers and their and black lawmakers their 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 legislative peers. Um, you had a few Democrat or one specific Democrat on the floor um, minutes before this ended up passing, who was saying that that she was ashamed over how her colleagues were treated and how she considered herself a supporter of Black Lives Matter, but she couldn't support this this change in qualified immunity. And and really what we were seeing was black lawmakers were saying, the way that that you interact with police, the way that I experience interacting with police is is fundamentally different. And so we were watching lawmakers essentially try to talk about racism in real time and the the black experience in real time. And I, I think that that was... To some extent, what the hang-up over qualified immunity was, because some some of the the lawmakers of color were saying essentially like the way when we're talking about compromising, we're talking about you know compromising for people who who look like me, people who are family members who grew up and who are my constituents, and I think that there was there was a disconnect among some of the Democratic lawmakers who were seeing this. Qualified immunity and this this other immunity as as a bridge too far But it was it was spilling out as we were talking about it and it was really drawn as as a line in the sand by progressive lawmakers specifically legislators of color who were saying like no, this is something that needs to stay in the bill because this will this will make life safer and more equitable for for black and brown residents across the state and there was a very clear disconnect on display
0: And it was this specific part of the bill that not only was the hang up amongst lawmakers trying to hammer out some sort of bipartisan agreement here, but it was also the reason why the police who were out in front of the Capitol were out there. This was the part that the police were very, very concerned about.
2: This is a big part of that. I, I want to be clear. It's not as though officers were completely okay with this bill in its entirety. Um, there were, they, they raised concerns about a number of issues in the bill. Um, to bring up just a few, they were worried about mental health assessments uh, that they would have to get uh, every five years or so, which is actually a concern that was echoed by several uh, mental health advocates. Um, they were also concerned about, I saw some chatter about changing the use of force standard, which, which narrows the circumstances in which an officer can justifiably use deadly force. Uh, there were there were also some issues with having to return military equipment um, that they that they said that they relied on. So there were a lot of parts of the bill. I think the part that that sort of functioned as a lightning rod. Um, and attracted a lot of the criticism and a lot of the airtime and ink was qualified immunity and the civil protection, which raised a whole host of concerns for police officers who generally had their concerns also echoed by municipalities.
0: When we're talking about qualified immunity, at least as it pertains to Connecticut and at least as it pertains to police accountability in this bill, what does it mean?
2: There's several different types of immunity that that can protect government employees. Um, The one that we're talking about the broadest term of it is qualified immunity. Specifically, this bill this bill is dealing with governmental immunity, which is if you're imagining an umbrella, governmental would be underneath of qualified governmental immunity. So let's say that a police officer brutalizes somebody. Let's say that they they, they beat them on on the streets. If that were to happen, a police officer could conceivably say, "Well, this is this is a governmental immunity situation because." There's a set of laws that are discretionary, which they can say because there isn't an explicit set of circumstances that lawmakers have set aside for how I do my job. This I am immune from a civil lawsuit. I'm shielded from this. Police officers protested in mass over this, both in terms of the 12-hour listening session on the bill. Police chiefs association were threatening to pull their support. There were a whole lot of folks who were, who were against it. Essentially, their contention was that it is going. They were saying that it would make it harder for them to recruit and retain law enforcement officers. They predicted a wave of retirements uh, and, and people who would just simply leave the profession because they would be scared. They would be worried about losing their own money and being, being held civilly liable for all these lawsuits if they were to violate someone's rights. Now, to be clear, the concern over them being personally held responsible is overblown they are not going to be personally on the hook for this Um, cities and towns could potentially be on the hook for this however that is also somewhat up in the air it seems because they can have insurance uh, liability insurance that would essentially cover the costs of these now there is concern that cities and towns have over premiums but there seems to be a dispute over whether or not premiums would rise all of that much and this is the point that activists make Um, if police aren't violating people's rights, then they shouldn't have anything to worry about. And it also provides an incentive for cities and towns to kick people off of their payrolls, police off of their payrolls, if they are repeated violators.
0: You can follow Kellen's reporting and all the reporting from the Connecticut Mirror on this special legislative session at ctmirror.org. Let me tell you about another thing that's happening, not just a special Senate session coming up tomorrow, Tuesday the 28th, but we've also got a special conversation. It's called A Lost School Year, a coffee conversation. It's happening from 10 to 11 a.m. I'm going to be leading this conversation along with Jacqueline Rabe-Thomas, who covers education for the Connecticut Mirror, and State Education Commissioner Miguel Cardona, along with Ryan Brown. He's a middle school teacher from Bridgeport. We're going to be talking about what happened this last school year as COVID shut down schools, made students and teachers turn to online learning, and what we can expect of this upcoming school year. It's still a little unclear. If you want to go to ctmirror.org, you can register for this Coffee Conversation. Again, it's happening Tuesday, July 28th, from 10 to 11 o'clock. You can register there and take part in what I think is going to be a pretty interesting and worthwhile conversation. State lawmakers aren't the only ones grappling with questions of police accountability. The Connecticut Bar Association formed its own task force under its outgoing president, Ndidi Moses. She's an assistant U.S. attorney and civil rights coordinator for the Civil Division at the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Haven.
1: The policing task force actually started, um, the idea for it came up in order to kind of create the space for the legal community, the law enforcement community, and the public to kind of convene and start talking together, talking about solutions. The the issue, the problem I think has been studied quite a lot over the course of time, but very rarely have those entities come together and talk about solutions. And I think it's really important the task force has those three components, you know, law enforcement, legal community, and the larger community because attorneys represent municipalities they represent police departments, they bring cases against police departments and towns. Um, And obviously, they're supposed to be the ones who are ensuring the protection of the rule of law. Um, And so, making sure that all those groups come together, I think, was paramount. Now, at the time we started our task force, we knew about the state's task force. So, our task force is working with them to assist them with with the work that they're they're doing. You can't take the idea of changing policing lightly. It's going to impact all of our worlds. And making sure that we're making the right decisions, I think, is paramount.
0: What do you think needs to change?
1: Uh, You know, it's so hard to say because I think that there's so many ongoing conversations. One of the things that I think probably is the most important is conversation. You know, we miss each other um, and we miss uh, each other's interests and goals when we assume and when we don't feel comfortable being open and having candid conversations. And what I've seen in my work at the Connecticut Bar Association, my work when I was president of the Black Bar Association, my work just with the community in general is that when you bring people into the room together and they start talking about what they really want, what you find is that they have a lot more in common than they realize. It's very hard to hate up close, right? Um, And when people are given a forum that opens up space for conversation where they can be candid, where they know it's a safe space, all of a sudden, you realize that you have a whole lot of people in the room who can provide you with a lot of really good information and data and ideas um, as, as long as they're given the space and the opportunity. And so I think one of the challenges is that we spend too much time assuming what people think um, and really not investigating and having those difficult conversations. Um, but if we don't have those difficult conversations, we misunderstand what people want we misunderstand what value they can add to the process and sometimes we make premature assumptions that impact us negatively in the long run.
0: But, but let's move past those conversations because obviously those are incredibly important to have. There seemingly are some pretty hard lines that for instance police unions have about what they are willing to give up when it comes to, to accountability. In, in your experience, do you think that beyond the tough conversations, we need to actually cross some lines and change some things about the ways in which we hold police accountable for their actions so that people can feel more comfortable that they are being policed in a, in a fair and honest way?
1: I will tell you I'm not familiar with the, the discussions the police unions um, have been having, like the hard lines that they're drawing. Um, I do believe just generally, you know, if you want change, you have to get out of your comfort zone, right? Change is not possible if you maintain the status quo, if you continue doing what you've always been doing. It's just, it's impossible to actually effectuate change. And so I think on all sides, the important thing is being comfortable being uncomfortable for a while. Things, when things change, there are going to be things that you have to give up, and there are going to be things that you have to take on. Um, And I think that just embracing that change and recognizing, you know, its value is going to be really important. I think that the difficult part is is that we've had this system for so long. um, And I'm not sure how much data is out there regarding how these changes are going to impact in the long run. So it's a very large experiment, right? And so you can kind of understand the concerns people have on both sides. But I think that we have to build some level of trust. And for me, the conversations are so key because as you're going through this process of giving up something, you know, being uncomfortable, the way you get through it is knowing that you have a forum, a place where you can talk to people and where they'll listen to your concerns and make adjustments as necessary. I think people are more comfortable with the you know, losing something and giving up something if they know that it's not forever and there's an opportunity to revisit it if it's not working. I think that we have to be open and flexible to adjusting and making changes, you know, as we start assessing whether or not what we're going to do is going to work.
0: So uh, on, on the end that you're more familiar with, what do you think needs to change in terms of the way we prosecute people in america because i think a lot of people who are looking at the system say the police are one piece of it but the the way in which we prosecute criminal behavior or supposed criminal behavior is is another part of the issue from from your standpoint what conversations are you and your colleagues having about things we need to change ourselves
1: you know i i do a fair amount of outreach with the Connecticut bar just generally and you know there's Definitely, I've seen over the years, a lack of information flow, right? So one of the biggest problems that people um, getting frustrated with the system is not understanding how it works, not understanding what the considerations are, not understanding the process, not understanding why things take so long, not understanding how to get involved and not understanding how to file complaints, not understanding how to navigate this world, right? And so, hey, to... Keep on saying the word again, you know, communication is key in this space. And I think that the first really important step we can make is having that information flow a lot cleaner, a lot quicker, a lot clearer, so that the community understands the legal world um, and we understand the community's needs. Without that, it's really difficult to try to figure out where the gaps and holes are. Um, You know, there's so many times when I've had people complain to the Connecticut Bar that something was happening um, and then you talk to them and you walk them through the process of what's required and how it should play out. And they say, Oh, that, that's what happened, but I didn't know that's how it's supposed to work, right? I'm not sure. I, I, I didn't understand that, that this was going to happen later on. I didn't understand where I would have a role in this process. Um, and so I think a lot of times, you know, when you hear complaints about lawyers not responding, a lot of times people get frustrated because they file the complaint on Monday and then they wait three months and nothing happens. And so getting people to understand how the system works. It's not the best, it's not the quickest, um, but understanding when they'll have an opportunity to speak or be involved, I've I found has been so instrumental in getting people to have more faith in the process. And probably that's the number one thing we have to restore is faith and trust. I mean, and, and how we do it, I think is the, is the bigger question, but I think the first part of it is education because if the community doesn't understand what's going on, then how could they possibly trust the process, right? And if we don't understand what the community needs and what their where the gaps are, how can we properly serve? Them? I think I mean I think that what we've seen with the protests and the requests to defund the police and you know what we've been seeing for the last couple months, if you were if you were unclear about the fact that the community didn't trust the system, I think you understand now that that that's as a, as a reality. Whether it's right or wrong, it's the reality. And, um, and we have to embrace it. And we have to work from that point to restore that trust and that
0: faith. Indidi Moses is an assistant U.S. attorney and the civil rights coordinator for the civil division at the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Haven. She is also immediate past president of the Connecticut Bar Association. That's all the time we have for Steady Habits. Our program is produced by Jessica Friedman, thanks to Bruce Potterman, Beth Hamilton, and Kyle Constable. Our Steady Beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson, and they're recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us.